Are we live? We live inside. <laughs> Two seconds. <laughs> Not the squeaky toy. Hey everyone, it's me, Leomi Anderson, back with another episode of Role Model, the podcast where I ask the questions that you actually want to know of some of the world's biggest inspirations. And today is no exception. You're going to hear from a girl who is it, the model, the activist, and obviously the role model. It's Monroe Bergdorf. If you don't already know of Monroe, then you're about to meet a lady who grew up in a small town in Essex, just outside of London in the UK. Now, she's been profiled by Vogue as one of the most influential women in 2020, and is also one of the United Nations Women Changemakers. But we're going to take it right back to the very beginning and find out firsthand about everything. From transitioning into Monroe and the psychological and surgical journey she went through to get to where she is today. It was the fear of the unknown for me. I thought, I'm going to lose my parents. I'm not going to have any friends. Her dating life, the D. I would always date the guy that didn't have his shit together that was off the rails because I had my shit at least more sorted than him. And what it's like to be dragged through a media storm fueled by a corporate powerhouse and to not only survive, but thrive and look damn good whilst doing it. I don't think that there's any way to describe how it feels being in the midst of a media storm. It's so difficult to navigate because you need to think 10 steps ahead. You need to think everything that I say now is under a microscope and people are going to twist everything that I say to fit the narrative that's been painted of me. Let's hear from my girl, Monroe. Tell me, my love, how have you been? I have missed you so much. Oh, I miss you too. I'm really good. It's a bit of a strange period of time, but trying to make the most of it. I'm writing a book. So I'm busy. I've got stuff to distract me from the madness. But yeah, and I feel good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And we are definitely going to get into your book. But I just wanted to just say how flipping beautiful you look. Guys, obviously you can't see her, but she's got this kind of like brunette burgundy situation going on with the hair. It's very lightly curled (laughs) and tossed. Teeth on a 10. (laughs) But uh, I just thought if I'm having you on my podcast, I'm so used to watching your Instagram and I feel like they're always kind of talking at you and you know Mm. we understand that you are an activist we understand all of that but I want this interview to really just be about you and basically how you became this beautiful flower that is Monroe that everybody sees now thank you Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I wanted to start and ask you, what was a young Monroe doing before they even knew that they were Monroe? Oh, God. Well, it's been a journey for sure. Yeah. I think, well, the thing is, my name was Monroe before I even transitioned. So it's a nickname. I won't say what my actual name is because I like to kind of keep a little bit of privacy. But 
it just kind of like stuck. There was two people that had the same name as me before I transitioned in my friendship group at university. And we were 18 and, you know, two people in a friendship group couldn't possibly have the same name. And I was younger <laughs> and they were just like, you're going to have to change your name. So, because <laughs> everyone's confused. So yeah, I ended up taking Monroe because I had, you know, Mucha Buena from the Sugar Babe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had the same piece. <laughs> Oh my so, days. Mm. <laughs> love Mutia, big on Mutia. But yeah, it was a choice that I kind of regret. <laughs> and so tell me, what was your day-to-day life when you were growing up? And who were some of your like biggest inspirations? I grew up in Essex. Yeah, it was really dead. There was like nothing happening there <laughs> whatsoever. I was so bored. I didn't have any friends really when I was growing up. It wasn't really until I was like 16, 17 that I actually started making friends. I came came out as gay originally when, and I identify as queer now, but um, I came out as gay when I was 14. So like, so you're going to hear a lot of animal noises in the background, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> just in case you hear any dogs barking, ladies and gentlemen, we have Noah's Ark. Um... <laughs> just in case you're wondering what is that animal noise in the background? I've got a thousand animals. Um, but yeah, so I was, I don't know, I was kind of isolated and I just kind of, you know, didn't really know who I was. People didn't know how to take me because I was very, very different to other people in that area. It was a really, really white area. There was like no queer gay people that were out at all. I was the only person that was out in my school. I was the only black person in my school. And I'm light-skinned, so it was like a shock for them to see someone who was like, you know, even a little bit black. Mm. So it was a very difficult place to grow up. And then I moved to Brighton for university, and that was a lot more freeing. I felt like definitely I was coming into myself during the Brighton days, stayed there for three years, and then I moved to London. Okay, let's actually just explore that because I didn't know that you were one of the only black people in your school and that you came out in school. How was that? How was coming out and being the minority already? What was it like? I mean, it wasn't a shock to anyone when I came out. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone was kind of like, we know. Um, But I didn't, it wasn't like this big coming out moment. I just kind of stopped denying it when I was being Mm. bullied like everyone was like gay boy gay boy and I was like well I know like you know so like I don't know who you're telling (laughs) (laughs) and I think that kind of disarmed them a lot actually I think that people they want to bully you because they feel like it's your weak spot and as Mm. soon as you start to you know embrace the thing that they think is a weakness and you know I I hadn't really accessed all of my pride at that point but Mm. I knew that there was other queer people in the world and that it wasn't something that I should be bullied for so as soon as I started showing that I was you know demonstrating even a little bit of pride they really kind of backed off Mm, See, I think that's such a pivotal moment for you because, and even for people who are listening to this, because I feel like a lot of people feel that if they keep it a secret, keep denying it and keep that part of themselves secret, that Mm. that is their strength in a way, like a defense mechanism. Mm. But from your experience, actually just living in your truth was your strength and was what kind of made you feel more free. And that's something that I feel vibrates from your energy as well as someone who is your friend, that you're someone who makes people who come around you feel that they can just be 100% themselves, whatever mood they're in, whatever vibe they're in, however they feel, I think that you make people feel that they can just open up. And I want to know, was there anybody growing up that made you feel that way, that made you feel that that freeness that you could just be like, okay, I am gay or I am feeling a little bit different? And how mm. were those early conversations? 
you know what, I really didn't have that person mm. when I was growing up. And I think that that's why I tried to make people feel at ease and make people feel like they can just be themselves because mm. I know what it's like to be put in a box and told that you can't be the person that you are organically. And mm. I'm writing about how, you know, traumatized young queer people or queer people of my generation are because we just weren't allowed to be ourselves. I was constantly encouraged to do boy things. And I went to mm. a, a school that specialized in mathematics and rugby. <laughs> I can't do either of those things. And I don't really have much of an interest in either of them either. So it was really difficult. I tried to, you know, study the masculinity that really came to my peers naturally and tried mm. to emulate that. And it's so damaging to try and be something that you aren't. Um, and I've always been really, really feminine, even, you know, before I transitioned. And I just wish that I'd been encouraged to see it as a power mm. and not a hindrance. And it isn't just people saying that that's not for me. It's people saying that that is secondary. Because mm. across the board, feminine things are seen as second fiddle to masculine things. And especially when you don't fit into the masculine box, but you're perceived as part of the masculine, yeah. it's really damaging. No, I didn't even think of it in that perspective of how, just how damaging it is, because it's mm. not just about oh, I'm just going to just do this while I'm at school. It's something that you carry with you everywhere until oh, yeah. you accept who you are in every sort of circumstance and in every room that you step sure. into. But it definitely does take time. When do you feel that you began to understand what it was to be trans? And was it something that you had to research and come to terms with? Or was mm. it something that as soon as you saw it, you were like, okay, this is me? I didn't have a eureka moment. Mm. I think it was more just a process of adding up I don't know all throughout my teens I was like the math's just not mathing <laughs> <laughs> something's off and I didn't know what it was and at first I thought oh okay I'm I'm gay or maybe it's because I'm black and gay that I feel so weird about being gay and mm. then I was like hmm something's just not right and I thought that I was gay because I was in the body that I was in and I liked other bodies that look like my body. So I thought, okay, I'm gay. And then I transitioned and then I was like, okay, well, I can't say that I'm gay anymore because I'm attracted to the opposite sex, I guess. And then mm -hmm. I started having feelings for people that looked like my body. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, okay, well, I need to explore this. And then I did. And then I was like, well, I guess that I'm not straight or gay. I guess I'm just going to stop trying to define myself because sexuality is clearly not as rigid as I thought it once was. And it's actually not an uncommon thing for trans people to have a change in their sexual feelings because sexuality isn't what we physically do. It's about mm -hmm. our feelings. So you can be in heterosexual relationships for your entire life and have queer feelings and still be queer. It's not about who you're dating. It's about how you feel. Um, so I think around the age of 19, mm. I met my first trans friend knowingly mm. um, because obviously I'd met trans people and not known it. Yeah. And she was just so, for lack of a better word, normal. And normal is such a relative term, but I think 
everybody has their version of normal. I just resonated with her and I just saw myself in her and I was like, oh God, I've really been pushing against this trans thing because I have so much internalized transphobia and I was viewing Mm. trans women in a way that wasn't positive. And because I had no first-hand experience. Mm-hmm. I had no role models. I had no positive media representation. The representation that I grew up with with trans women was diabolical. We were either presented as tragic or men in dresses yeah, or, you know, psychos. And I internalized that. I just thought there's no way that I'm trans because I'm none of these things. Mm-hmm. Not knowing that trans women have done so much within society and contributed so much. And we've got such a rich history Mm. and it really took me being okay with myself to be able to transition and throughout my whole childhood it was so turbulent I just wasn't in the headspace and I didn't have the education education is so powerful so when you say you had to like get your head right to get ready to transition Mm. what would you say was the mental preparation to actually begin that journey because obviously I know a lot of people listening to this they want to know that as well like how do you mentally prepare because it's a huge journey and I Mm. think as well people often conflate transitioning with your own personal journey and I'm like actually they're intertwined but it's also two different things because you can be still growing as a person and not be ready to transition you Mm. can be ready to transition as a person but you know still be getting to know yourself as an individual so I want to kind of just understand that process and like how do you mentally prepare for it I don't I think everyone's different everyone's Mm. got a different journey everyone's got a different transition because everyone's got different lives it was the fear of the unknown for me I thought I'm gonna lose my parents I'm not gonna have any friends I'm not gonna have a family I'm not gonna find someone who loves me how am I gonna find work transitioning in a workplace is going to be hell. I'm probably going to be sacked because the legislation wasn't there to protect me in the workplace. Mm. I think it's a gender equality act um, Mm. that passed in 2010. That wasn't in place. So trans people could be sacked at the workplace. So there was a thousand questions going on and a thousand possibilities, but we all know with anxiety, it's 10 times worse Mm. in your head than it is in reality. So I had to get myself out of my own way. And I had to Mm. think, you are doing this for you. You can't not live your life because you're scared of the what ifs. You Mm. need to step into the unknown because, you know, we know with our jobs, you never know when your next job's going to come. But you do it Already, anyway. Yeah. You do mm-hmm. it anyway because you have a faith in yourself, your ability, and you love the industry that you're in. It was the same thing for me with transitioning. I knew that I wanted this for myself. I didn't know where it was going to go, but I knew that I could do it. And I mm-hmm. needed to get to that point where I was like, you can do this regardless of how other people take it. And that takes a little bit of time to put together a game plan Transitioning Mm. is expensive in terms Mm. of if you want to medically transition. I knew that I wanted surgery and it's a really long road. You've been there like with me throughout a lot of my medical transition, Mm. I feel. Quite a lot's happened in the past three years. I look like a different person. Yeah, you look flipping (laughs) bomb, bitch. That's all I've got to fucking say. Thank you. But like, that's just one part of my transition. I think a lot of people look at the physical change and they think, oh, that's the transition. And it's not. It's like, that. that's a big portion, but it's getting yourself into the mental space where you can do that. And that Mm. takes a long time. 
So what would your advice be to somebody who they want to start mentally preparing to transition? They may not be able to afford surgery, but they want to start trying to like feminize their look or start to step into their own. Okay, first up, I would say when I first started my transition, I put way too much emphasis on looking cis or gravitating towards a femininity that was cis. And I would say everybody's femininity looks different. I've eased up on myself a lot. And I know that that's easy for me to say because I've had two rounds of FFS. But (laughs) (laughs) just for those of you who are listening who don't know, FFS stands for facial feminization surgery. Yeah, the first one was a necessary (laughs) FFS because I was not able to look at myself in the mirror. And I felt, you know, really dysphoric and dysmorphic about my appearance. So I would say the first thing really to bear in mind is that your femininity does not need to look like somebody else's and Mm. your transition does not need to mirror anybody else's. But think bigger than your transition. What do you want for your life? Where do you want to be? I think sometimes transitioning can be so all-consuming that you don't think about, you know, your future like who are you going to be at 40 years old like what Mm. what do you want for your life and it's also very easy to hate yourself because your transition isn't moving as fast as you want and Mm. I kind of just look back and I just think oh god I really wish that I'd protected my vessel because this is what I need to exist in for the rest of my life and that I'd really lost that foresight because my transition became so much of a present turbulence. Mm. So um, yeah, just try and think about the future. Think about um, how you want to look for you, not for anybody else. And just, you know, you're more than your transition. You're a person. You said earlier on, you went through a period of time where you weren't being so kind to yourself. Mm. Can you just talk to me a little bit more about that and just how you overcame that dark time? Yeah, I think everybody has their trauma. But for me personally, it it wasn't really until the situation with L'Oreal that I realised that I'm part of a community and it isn't just about how I feel. It's about the fact that we're all connected. And I was shown so much kindness by Black women, by queer people, by... Um, trans people that supported me during that time. Going through that obviously helped you grow as a person, also prepared you for, you know, being in the media. So can you just talk me through like how you got through that situation and really just what you learned from that situation and being in the public eye? I don't think that there's any way to describe how it feels being in the midst of a media storm. It's so difficult to navigate because you need to think 10 steps ahead. You need to think everything that I say now is under a microscope and people are going to twist everything that I say to fit the narrative that's been painted of me, which was that I was this angry black trans woman who hated men, who hated white people, who was on a mission to just be inflammatory and controversial. And that wasn't what I was doing at all. I was literally just trying to speak about things that weren't being spoken about. And then lo and behold, last year, everyone was saying exactly what I was saying in 2017. So I was like, hmm, ain't this a turnout for the books? But I was really glad that people were saying what I was saying. And it just proved that it takes somebody 
taken the fall to, um, you know, start the conversation. And I'm really glad that it started a conversation. I mean, I wasn't the only person saying Mm -hmm. it, but I was probably the only person at that level in the country saying it in terms of media exposure. Of course, there's, you know, amazing authors like Akala and Rene Edo-Lodge. But I was just the one that had all of the cameras on them. So of course it um, blew up. Mm. I don't, know of another situation that has happened like what's happened to me because scandals ruin lives you know I mean we saw what happened with Caroline Flack as well you know a lot of people cannot take it because it is relentless Mm. and it also made me realize what I'm capable of that I can you know go on television and debate and I know what I'm talking about and I am intelligent and I think I just been I'd been so battered down by life by men by you know, uh, the people that I grew up with. So I've really had to work through stuff. Mm. And when I wasn't working through Mm. stuff and it became overwhelming, I was really, really cruel to myself. I, you know, used to take so many drugs to try and get out of my body, used to drink so much. I Mm. used to sleep with so many people that had no care and or didn't even know who I was, you know, had no interest in getting to know me. Yeah. It was just very much of me trying to escape. It was all about escapism, party, 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 mm. try to forget about the world. And I know that a lot of people do it and we don't really talk about it. Yeah. I think, it's glamorized you know, almost, especially within the fashion industry. It's glamorized. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, so many people that are, you know, at the top of their game that still have struggled with that. I know that Naomi's talked about that. Kate struggled with that. I don't mm. want to go through everybody, but, you know, people that are at the pinnacle of the industry have their demons. And my demons came out in a very similar way. And I was ashamed of that. I was thinking, you know, I can't, I can't let people know that I've, you know, taken drugs, that I've essentially not even cared if I live or die. And I'm just really proud of myself now with writing this book that I'm getting it all out there. Yeah. And oh God, I feel so emotional. Let yourself feel because you should be so proud of yourself. Like you should be so flipping proud of yourself. I just, I also want want people to know that If we're honest about these things, if we can open a dialogue about, especially how queer people who, you know, within the queer community, especially the gay community, you know, I mean, the queer community is the gay community, but there's the queer scene and there's the exclusively gay scene and I've (laughs) frequented both. Um, But within, you know, there's a lot of drug taking and there's a lot of issues with alcohol. Mm. And for me, it was really a way of coping. And I feel like with a lot of people, it is a way of coping. Mm. We don't really talk about it. I've lost a lot of friends to drugs Mm. and I've lost a lot of relationships to people not being able to deal with alcohol and the stuff that comes with that, with falling outs. And so I I just want people to know that you can come out the other side. Mm. Mine was never an addiction. It was a problem. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Do you feel that when you're in these dark times, dealing with the trauma, dealing with all these things, that sometimes when you get into relationships with people, sometimes they can be beneficial and sometimes they can't. And did you ever have a a relationship that contributed to your negative feelings of yourself? And just to speak to your young audience as well and let them know how to navigate relationships. So, I mean, I didn't believe that I... (laughs) deserved goodness. You know, if a potential suitor came along Mm. and they were sorted and they had like their life together, they, you know, didn't want to go out all the time, just wanted to get to know me, then I would kind of just be like, "Mm." I would rather go for the other person who's Mm. emotionally unavailable, probably taking loads of drugs, you know, completely off the rails, but the sex is bomb. Do you know (laughs) what I mean? I would go for the wrong option every time because I felt like I didn't deserve it. Mm. I thought, you know, this person is going to suss me out. They're going to realize that actually my shit's not together. Then I'm going to have to confront it. And I was running away from it because I would always date the guy that didn't have his shit together that was off the rails because I had my shit at least more sorted than him. So yeah, I get you. So it's kind of like stick to the devil that you know, like, okay, you're messed up. I'm messed up, but you're a little bit more messed up than me. So I don't feel as messed up type of situation, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. And then it wouldn't work as well because then they would resent me because I was less messed up than them, but mm. I would feel good and I would kind of try to fix them because it was distracting mm. me from having to fix myself. So, you know, I would really say to anybody who is in a similar situation, try Try to focus on yourself and sometimes it actually is a really good thing to just be single and think about who you're gravitating towards. In my early 20s, I thought it was cute. I thought it was, you know, just kind of we're just living on the edge here. And it got to it got to the it got to my late 20s. And I was kind of like, oh God. And I'm like in my mid-30s now. God, how that happened. But my late 20s and I was kind of like, this isn't cute anymore. This is actually detrimental to my life. And I ended up in an abusive relationship. And this was when I was in my mid-20s. And he really just beat the life out of me in terms of, not physically, but it it was mental torture. He would make me feel so small, and like I couldn't do anything. It's, it was always, always been my dream to work with the UN. And he knew that that was my dream and I'm doing it. But he was telling me that there's no way that the UN would ever work with anyone like you. That's disgusting. It's just a way for people to A, make them feel better about themselves, but also... <sighs> Sorry. It breathe. It's um yeah, it's it's just very difficult for me to talk about because I was just I was gaslit so much. And we use that word a lot at the moment, but 
I was manipulated to the point where I completely lost myself. And people often say, why don't people, why don't women, especially in abusive relationships leave? And I was whittled down to the point that I didn't feel I had any use beyond him. And it happened in a way, the thing with manipulation is you don't know it's happening. If you do, then it's not manipulation. It's attempted manipulation. And it worked. I was completely under his spell. I was manipulated with sex. I was manipulated with, you know, promises of stability and a family. And I was flattered in a way where he used my transition as a way of controlling me, convincing me that no other man is ever going to want to be with me apart from him. And ha- mm. he's done all of this for me. Um, how dare I not be appreciative of of it and it it got to the point where it drove a wedge between my family and me um mm, he isolated you he isolated me emotionally and physically and you know completely berated how i looked controlled what i wore it was just very i, I can't i can't i can't put it into words yeah. how awful it was mm. And to be controlled by another person, it throws you into this space of you're like, who am I? You know, what do I want from life? And obviously I, I was dealing with all of my trauma as well. And then he was using that against me as well. Um, so, I mean, it, it's really difficult. And I know that a lot of trans women end up in relationships with cis men that end up abusive as well, because that cis man often has an issue with the fact that he finds trans women attractive. Mm. And this guy had issues with that as well. And then that became my fault. (laughs) It was a really awful time. But you're through it now. And I want to know who is your type now? Like if you could like paint a picture of your dream D or P, man or woman, whatever. Like, what is the vibe? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you know, we we, we like it all over here. You know what I'm saying? We have to accept it all. So the D or the P, what's your vibe now, you know? You know what? And this is going to sound a little bit narcissistic, but it's actually not because I've worked to become the person that I want to be. And honestly, I want to see a little bit of the work that I have put into myself in somebody else. Mm. I don't want to date myself. No, I get it though. But there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with there's that. There's nothing wrong with that, but that that's, I, I, I would drive myself nuts. But I, <laughs> I want to see someone who has taken the time to be alone and mm. to work on themselves rather than distracting themselves with other people. I saw a quote the other day on the gram and it said, are you distracted or healed or are you healed or just distracted? And I think that there's so many distractions going on, especially at the moment. And I want to see someone who is focused on healing. I don't want to be someone's distraction. So mm. I don't care whether or not you got a D or a P. Um, I think it's really about the soul and how is your soul? Mm. Oof, put it on a t-shirt, put it on a <laughs> coffee table book. That's my merch. Yeah. <laughs> that, mm, you got some one-liners here they need to trademark. Oh, 
So let's talk about before all of this then. What would you say was your wildest encounter? Oh no, Leomi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to tell you my wildest no. encounter because it's, it's, it's not for sharing. <laughs> That's Fair. the kind of thing that you share. <laughs> When, yeah. When yeah. When um, we don't have a when when there's not microphones. Yeah. Yes. Um, my wildest encounter. I write about probably the most memorable um, encounter. Do I know this one? I don't know. I I've told you all sorts of shit. I know. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm going to say the first time that I had sex with a woman. Okay. Because ah. it's a very different kind of sex. And I feel like when two women, especially two women who, well, a woman that has had a very different journey to this woman, but mm. it was it was like a, a realization for me as a person, but also the way in which sex happened wasn't performative. And I've just, I'd gotten mm. used to performming in bed and doing the oh, whole fantasy me. thing. And yeah, I didn't need me. to do that. And it was mind-blowing to me that you can have sex without having to perform for somebody. And I started having sex for myself. And I was like, wow, that orgasm was different because I wasn't concerned with how I looked, how, you know, it made him feel. I wasn't concerned about if my back was arched enough or like... Yeah, or if your cheeks are clapping enough. Oh, Do you know what I, I mean? Know. I was kind of like, I was just fully present and it was like an emotional connection that I've never experienced before. Ooh. It was a realisation for me. That's so funny that you say that because I was just speaking about this with my friend the other day that I think that for most cis women like women who are always having sex with guys right that you don't realize that you're always taking into account what the man is thinking and what the how they view you mm -hmm. and that's because even from when we're taught sex education it's always been about okay the man's gonna do this to you mm -hmm. whatever happens happens to you kind of thing and for the longest time even me as myself like I feel like I've even gone on a journey with my sex life mm -hmm. because although I, I haven't had sex with one woman I can understand what you're saying about not having to be performative because I can't lie maybe I, now I'm thinking like am I a performer oh my gosh because the way I just be like ha ha like whatever you know what I mean like but I'm like do I actually need to make this sound or am I just making this sound because it's just like the vibe right now you got me thinking oh my days like I'm writing about this in the book too sorry this is just like one book hashtag transitional <laughs> no 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 because we're actually going to get into that I actually want to ask you a lot more about your book okay tell me about the process because I know as you've said that at times it was like kind of painful you're talking about painful things you're talking about mm. things that maybe you wouldn't have you know been able to even explore in this way before writing is yeah. a very intimate process so just mm -hmm. talk to me about when you started writing and how you began to you know put your thoughts into a book yeah well I've been writing this book for two and a half years mm. and I can't actually imagine my life without having it in the back of my head now so I'm really looking forward to yeah. having it <laughs> and just like kind of being present um but it's, it's been a very very difficult but cathartic mm. process and seeing it all come together now I'm so proud of myself um mm. it's frustrating because you write so much more than you use Really? And, yeah. Oh. And I did so much research for this book and half of it's not even going in <laughs> because it's become a lot more personal than we actually originally 
expected it to be. Mm. To kind of have all of it in this book is scary, but I'm glad that it's all on my own terms and it's framed exactly how I want it to be. And when people read it, I think that it's really going to be a take it or leave it. This is me. Mm. I'm not a perfect person. I've never said that I'm a perfect person. I've never called myself a role model, but I've ended up being one. And I've just kind of embraced that because I'm not going to, you know, start telling, you know, these kids, no, I'm not your role model. Yeah. (laughs) If if someone tells you that, then you've got to, you know, lean into it and think, oh, actually, I need to start thinking about the way that I behave now because people are looking up to me. And I think it's a lovely thing. I used to really push against it and be like, no, Mm. I'm not a role model. Yeah, I I get it. (laughs) I haven't got my shit together. And like, you don't need to have your shit together. You need to try. And I Mm. think that's, that's the main thing about being a role model is you need to at least try. And for, you know, a Black trans woman to be given a six-figure contract for a book, you don't hear about that. And it's not about just the money. It's about, you know, being paid your worth and being Mm. recognized and being paid how other people would be paid for this kind of thing. So, Mm. I mean, that was really important to me. This is why anybody out there who's in position of power, who has the ability to be able to pay Black women, pay trans women, pay the LGBT plus community their worth, make sure you do it because our words are just as valuable as mm-hmm. a, a cis white man or woman's. And Absolutely. if anything, and sorry, but how I view it, yeah, when I'm on jobs and stuff and I'm with like a group of white models and I'm the only black model, I'm like, if anything, why am I being paid less? I should be paid more because I'm more rare. I'm more rare. Exactly. So actually, Equity, not equality. Thank you very much. <laughs> River from East London, who's age 15, I think that she's got a great question that we can end on, which is, do you have an object, like a piece of clothing, a piece of makeup, a handbag, or something that makes you just feel invincible? Um, I, I, I try to like be as spiritual as I can and connect myself to things that surpass, you know, money. And mm. there's a piece of labradorite that I've got, which is a crystal, which is um, one of the most powerful crystals in terms of um, psychic ability and um, opening up your consciousness. And it's a great crystal for tr- transitional moments. And mm. um, someone, I don't know who sent me it, but somebody sent it to me in 2017 when I was going through all of that bullshit. And I've always just seen it. I've put it by my television now. So when I'm watching it, my mind always like draws it back to that. And then I've, I, every single time that I've gone through a formative time, and there's been quite a few in the past four years, <laughs> I've got myself a big lump of Labradorite. And it's just, it's something that will always exist in the world. So even if I lose one piece, I can always get another piece. But it's it's what that stands for and what that represents and how it makes me feel. And I carry them whenever I go and have surgery or if I have a breakup or if I, um, um, you know, going through um, another situation in the media. It, it's, it's just a way for me to close a chapter and open up a new one. Mm, I love that. Thanks. I love that so much. Well, thank you so much for being on the Role Model podcast. And as much as when you were first called a role model, you tried to push that title away, I will say that you are 
one of my biggest role models and I'm so happy to have had you on my podcast so thank you thank you for having me love you lots love you you too oh she said I think that you glitched majorly oh did I (laughs) (laughs) oh my god what am I frozen on no so what do I look like? No, I just took I a heard screenshot. Yeah, I, I, I heard that. I heard that. I hope I look cute. <laughs> Role Model is a Something Else production produced by Harriet Wells. Additional production from Steve Ackerman. The executive producers are Claire Solon and Chris Skinner. Special thanks goes to Ellen McLeod, Charlotte Tahira, Camilla Baden, Jesse Donnelly, Emma Lansden and Mark Rivers. The sound engineer was Gulliver Tickle. Next time on Role Model. My face was on billboards, on moving vehicles, on every single corner of streets. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on? You know? <laughs> and so it, and, and, and I was thrust into this industry, you know, um, and, and I guess that's what it is, you know? You can run away from your purpose, but your purpose will somehow find you. And I treated that um, set like it was my film school because I didn't get an opportunity to go and study theater and performance. So everything, like I was surrounded by, you know, veterans in the industry, people who had been on TV all my life that I admired and looked at and I'd be like, oh my God, they've done so much, you know, and just realizing that purpose had chased me down and found me and given me a second chance to, to do this again and do it right and do it in the most unconventional way. That's when all the brand partnerships came, Neutrogena came and then, you know, Puma came and then all kinds of, you know, brands were like chasing after me and they're like, we want to work with you, we want to work with you.